On this week's podcast, I sit down with Greg Romiliotis, deals editor at Reuters News. We discuss the changing landscape of M&A reporting. We examine why fewer deals are leaking to the press than in years past. And lastly, discuss the competition between rivals at Bloomberg, The Wall Street Journal, and CNBC. I'm Mike Samuels, founder and portfolio manager of Broom Street Capital. And this is According to Sources for the week of April 14th, 2019. It's crossing the tape right now. Let me explain what's happening here. Some breaking news to share with you this morning. M&A related. There's good activism. I think eBay is in that situation. They got a jewel in PayPal. There's bad activism. Unfortunately, JCPenney was a dying company. Examples of activism gone awry. It was not a surprise to me that that deal fell through. The first place that I want to start is, in my view at least, currently, it's been slow. There just hasn't been as many deals We haven't seen journalists break things in the way that we once did, and most people are wondering why that is. So you're justified to say that uh, because many people experience it that way. The fact is that in terms of dollar amount based on volumes, we started uh, in the U.S. uh, first quarter of 2019, the strongest for uh, many years, but a lot of it was mega deals, so the number of deals was down. But what else has happened is that you've seen uh, many deals go straight to press release. So Bristol-Myers Squibb Celgene, the uh, First Data deal, the um, BB&T SunTrust deal, um, many of the big deals. And I think, you know, that is a function of us, you know, M&A journalists needing to up our game and do a better job. But it's also a function of the media environment becoming... I think more and more, you know, digital and social media and other channels giving the companies the opportunity to get out the message themselves. So whereas a few years ago, there was, you know, a lot of value in leaking kind of like your your deal the night before, and that helped kind of like smooth the media rollout, because then you could arrange interviews in advance a little bit more easily. And, you know, if the Wall Street Journal, you know, is getting those stories and we get the stories. And But the Wall Street Journal, you know, traditionally got a lot of the stories thanks to the print edition also, where a lot of people cared about being on the, the first page. And now the media environment is such that companies can take ownership of the message to a large extent and post a video on Facebook and Twitter with the CEOs basically fist bumping and just mm-hmm. describing the things exactly the way they want. And then journalists can write it the way, you know, they think is fair and accurate as opposed to, you know, going even to more, to your most trusted journalist and conveying the message. They, they can own the message much more. So I think that is a consideration as well. When I first came into the business, it wouldn't be unusual. In fact, it was common for a story to break at 3.50 or 3.45 so-and-so in talks to buy, you know, another company, and then you would be able to trade it a little bit, and then we'd get the PR, let's say, that night or the next day. Do you think those days are over? No, I don't think they're over. Uh, It's it's happened, you know, it happens now, and it happened, like, um, you know, fairly recently to us and others, but I think it's just becoming more episodic, so... When's the last time we saw something like that? I remember the one that comes to mind is, like, uh, Salesforce buying Newsoft. We actually got it during market hours with a share price... But and if you ask me why is that uh, and not in other situations, the the stars have to align. I'm not going to talk about sourcing certainly and the specifics of that situation. But generally, I would tell you that you gotta have sources in particular places working on a particular deal, and those sources need to be close to you, and you need to know them for a long time, and they need to trust you, and they need to feel like in this particular deal, the deal is safe, and even if it leaks, they're not killing it, or if the deal could be killed, those particular people have to be less responsible. So many stars have to align for mm-hmm. this to happen, you know, and and generalists also have to work. I have to say also, like, some of those nearing a deal stories happen, not because necessarily we just kind of like are having dinner and someone calls us is that we've heard something before, but we don't have the full story and we've already alerted people. And by the time it gets close to signing and the boards have approved, sources basically take pity on us or, you know, they they are sympathetic, they want to help us, and then they come through at the right moment. That's the way also how many of those stories appear. Okay, so then my follow-up to that is, 
Well, I guess this is a two-part question. Does the bigger the deal, in a mega deal, are, are there just more people involved in it versus a small deal? And I ask that meaning, do you sometimes hear things, rumblings, rumors, and then you just can't verify it and therefore it never makes print? All the time. All, All the time. time. So we have uh, a list of 10, 10 tips now and at any given time about bank A is working on a $20 billion deal in technology or something like more specific. Many things, you know, start like that. Mm-hmm. Um, or very specific tips about company A being in talks to buy company B. Auctions of companies, particularly leverage buyouts, are much easier to pick up. Uh, there's often financing sources involved as well. Right. The problem, I think, from your perspective is that those things have the higher execution risk, kind of like, you know, um, right. leverage buyouts, particularly the, the kind of leverage buyouts that are out there. Um, at the moment, we get frustrated all the time by things that we've heard something about or a lot about, but we haven't managed to get uh, to the finish line. It happens a lot. In the finish line, meaning what? It gets P- it gets PR'd before you have the chance to break it? Did you, for example, hear about Bristol Celgene perhaps before it happened? I would say about Bristol Celgene uh, that with regards to that, because... In the R community, I can tell you there were rumblings about this deal uh, in December. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, the companies went uh, out of their way to keep that deal quiet um, in a way that I haven't seen in most deals. And you know, it's very interesting because afterwards, um, Starboard really exploited the fact that there was no heads up on the deal coming ahead of the press release. So people felt more entitled to speculate despite what the proxy said and what Bristol CEO said, could someone else buy Bristol Myers Quib? If it, it, it didn't just land on us like that, maybe you guys would have a deal for Bristol like now. So I think that had some people thinking. To your question, do does a bigger deal leak more easily? Does it involve more people? It can involve more people. A big factor is whether it's cash and stock. If it's all stock, you can keep the circle, you know, closer. If it's cash, you know, um, banks that are advisors, as long as they have even like a, li- a little bit of a balance sheet in order not to spread it around and also get the fees, will make an extra effort to basically pick it up themselves. And because much more is at stake when it comes to bigger deals, uh, M&A is roll of a dice for any acquirer, particularly when it comes to big deals, though, you know, the stars align in a very particular way, like a lot of people involved in the deal, principals and advisors have been working a long time to make it work. They're generally like very mindful about jeopardizing. Why is it perceived then that a a media leak is a huge problem? So for example, right, when Amazon Whole Foods was happening, Amazon told Whole Foods, if this leaks to the media, the deal's off. And we're just seeing this now when resorts in Crown. Crown, uh, it it got leaked when said it's over. So why is it so bad that it gets out in the public domain? And I have a great anecdote to share uh, with you on... um Amazon and Whole Foods and how Whole Foods CEO was basically um, taken to a blind location to meet Bezos. We feel like we can talk about it. I would love to hear it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, So leaks can do a couple of things. I, by having spoken to bankers and lawyers and advisors in the M&A industry, the consensus view is that if the target is not playing ball, a leak can help the deal. If the companies uh, are engaging and working towards the deal, then there's more downside to upside in linking. They can still be useful for the target to make kind of like a last market check to see like if anyone else is like interested. But there is actually a reason, and that's a challenge for M&A journalists, a lot of things that leak that are strategic because a target is not playing ball are less likely to come to the finish line. Ideally, as a trophy, you want to have break news on a deal midway through or during market hours, and it prints. Mm-hmm. You know, like I broke news on Comcast last year, raising financing to bid for um, you know the the Fox assets. 
it would have been probably the biggest deal of the year last year broken if it came to fruition. But unfortunately, like Disney won and Mr. Faber, I think like the year before it started claim credit. One of the reasons you see many of the league deals bilateral strategic M&A not making it to the finish line sometimes is because, you know, they were generated by the target not playing ball. So the league can increase the chance of it happening, but there was something structural there in the, to begin with that made it less likely, you know. So do you think that in the case of, of Wynn that it was Crown not playing ball? Because it would, it would be strange that Wynn would then walk away. So... I can't, again, I can't speculate about specific situations, although we had like no reporting on this. Um, that seemed to just come out of nowhere. No, no, no. The Australian Financial uh, Review broke it. And that's why uh, Crown came out with a statement. Yeah, no, I mean, it, before, it all happened in three days, let's say. But before then, there had been no rumblings of it, at least not that I had. Read. Yeah, it was early, though. I mean, uh, apparently, the, and the companies disclosed that it was still... When trying to get in there, I think he had made one offer or two offers before, but um, uh, Crown's board was in the process of considering the latest offer. It had, they haven't even opined on it yet. When Australian Financial Review came out with it and Crown came out and said, yes, we're in confidential talks, but, if you think to your question, I, I would speculate, not only did Crown confirm the approach, but they went out and put out the, the price of the mm. latest offer. They didn't have to do that. Right. So they did that, and they said our board hasn't considered it yet. And um, then when, uh, you know, first confirmed, and then a few hours later, it pulled. So what does it tell you? It, it, it certainly a leak like that tests the resolve of the acquirer. I remember two other cases this happened. One was in mine, in uh, Sire, when, you know, before Takeda Wada, the Takeda negotiations going on, Allergan, basically had approached them. Remember that? Allergan had approached Shire. Sire. Right. And because Sire was listed in, listed in London and the UK takeover panel is involved, I love the UK takeover panel. If we had it here, like it'd be... It would make life much easier if, yes, if we like, had like, those like, Yeah, let's work for M&A journalists. We still have M&A journalists in London, but like it's, it's, the, the, market, the market for information becomes more efficient. Um, so, and we'd get a lot less stupid rumors too. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it, 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 companies argue it's much more difficult to negotiate deals. So the efficiencies, the economy you see with M&A become more difficult under such a regulatory regime. There's like uh, pros and cons. I actually, the opinions expressed are my own, not of Reuters. I actually sat with you on that one. But um, so one was Allergan Sire. And basically I broke news that Allergan was eyeing a bid. Allergan comes out and confirms. Then a few hours later, they come out again saying they don't want to pursue it anymore. What we heard after was that Allergan CEO Brent Saunders um, had a few calls from shareholders saying, you're in the process of deleveraging now. What are you about to do? And you've seen Allergan's M&A machine having stopped now after mm -hmm. that. And there's an interesting um, fight with an activist um, with a vote uh, next month. The other situation, uh, I can remember by Bloomberg, breaking news that Ian was considering a bid for Willie Starr's Watson. This is recently. Very recently. Yes. Uh, so it was last month or the yes. month before? Um, it was well, Aeon and, and Willis. And Willis. Right. So what we were told, we're talking about like a lunch or a dinner or that kind of level of interaction, like very informal stuff, right? So um, Aeon comes out and confirms. And uh, the next day they pulled it again. Right. So, you know, unless you're committed to a deal as an acquirer, um, a deal can be pretty disruptive. If you're committed to it and the target is playing ball and there's a lot of rationale to the deal and you want to put pressure on the target, then maybe a leak helps. So, can go either way. What was the story about Amazon and Whole Foods? Right. So, um, this was conveyed to me by people like working on the deal that Whole Foods uh, CEO at the time was in Mackey. Jeff, John Mackey. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Basically, he was flown to uh, Seattle to meet Bezos, but um, they were not given the location. They were just told that we'll have someone waiting for you. Watch for the sign. So he arrived at the airport with, uh, you know, a couple of his executives and um, a couple of advisors. And sure enough, there was a sign there with his names. And 
his guys told him, what are you doing? Just because the guy's holding a sign with you, we're not going to get into the car. And the guy asked, can you tell us where we're going? No, sir. You know, like I come kind of like, you know, for Mr. Bezos, please get in the car. Or maybe it was like a big SUV or what have you. And then they were taken to a boathouse where Bezos was there. And, you know, they were told in Northern terms that anything being kind of like discussed had to be kept like very, very quiet. Otherwise, you know, there wouldn't, you know, there wouldn't be a deal. So. A boathouse in Seattle. Yeah, that's where where it all went down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and without knowing in advance where you're headed. That's crazy. We talked a little bit about the idea of like bad rumors and bad journalism. And it's like, uh, it runs rampant sometimes. We, I feel like there was a time where we'd get a, 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 deal, a, a rumor of a deal like every day and 99% of it was garbage. And you have these uh, publications like Street Insider that I'm sure you've heard of or um, you know Ben Harrington's blog. And like, what do you make of these things? And like the fact that not only what do you make of them, but like they move stocks. I'm going to turn the tables on you now and I'll have you answer me that because one of the things you do as you analyze situations and you look at the financial press, you must surely grade outlets and affect how you price things based on people's track record. And it astonishes me all the time. Like, you know, Those outlets you mentioned and many others, I'm not saying that someone should be licensed to be an M&A journalist or any kind of journalist, but certainly, you know, track record matters. And if particularly some outlets have emerged as a place where you go to dump, Mm -hmm. why people would still, you know, follow, I have no idea. Well, it's almost, it becomes like a chicken and egg thing, right? So, like, I pay Street Insider their $50 a month Why? because you, you, ha- you have no choice, right? Why do you have a choice? Well, think about it like this. I need to know, wrong or right, why a stock is moving, right? It it's, will tell you that, and Bloomberg will tell you that. Well, for example, like... Well, uh, like Blackstone will tell you that now because we sold our uh, terminal business to, uh, to Blackstone. It's called Refinity now. Right. But you know what I mean. You need to know why things are why things are moving around, regardless of how stupid the news is. You just need to know. So the Wouldn't f- like searching for the ticker on Twitter tell you that? Have some other people pay for it? Do, like you really do you have algos or are you really sensitive to that or um, it might. So you know, you probably see this sometimes. Maybe Reuters does it. Maybe Bloomberg does it. But like with someone like Deal Reporter, right? Yeah. Um, uh, Bloomberg obviously has a subscription. They'll take the Deal Reporter story and they'll like write a small summary of it. But that's not good enough for me. I need to read the whole story, right? So I subscribe. For the authoritative content. But you yeah. see, <laughs> yeah, I want my, I want to take my own spin on it, not the Bloomberg editorial's spin on it. Right. Plus, there might be details I want to know. So, but again, Street Insider, I mean, they're idiots, right? I mean, whatever they're doing, they're clowns, but you have to subscribe because, because I want, because amazingly, they still move stocks. But there's nothing like Reuters can do for you or the Wall Street Journal can do for you or Bloomberg can do for you in that regard, you know what I mean? There's just, you guys do less stories, that's all. So another, another thing I get all the time uh, asked uh, by investors is because we file a lot of things, a lot of our stories are not uh, the product of spontaneous combustion. We've been following things for a while, trying to verify things. And sometimes we confirm things that would be financially material for the stock. There's twists and turns, particularly, I mean, you have in an M&A process the, the key moments, whether it's like bilateral or an auction, like things are something is happening in the first place. And just the nearing a deal story, those are generally like the two important milestones for us. And maybe you want to do stories in in between. We have become more selective, like people take different views on when to start a fight in between. But suddenly, you know, there's many things that can happen in in the interim. And I get asked a lot, well, you know, would you happen to know this and that? And obviously we don't tell people things we have not already put on the wire, but like, um, if you happen to know this or that, why don't you storify it? Why would you only do one or two stories on things? So we write stories as interesting business stories that are material for the companies and the stock of the companies, but we don't look to move stock at every single turn, even though that would be possible. So, and I think the Wall Street Journal season like that, I think Bloomberg, um, 
seems to us like increasingly seasoned like that. I think like financial media have matured in that regard. So I want to go back to one of the things that you were talking about. You were like, I have 10, let's say, leads in, in the case file right now. And I guess the first place I want to go is how do you get the initial the initial nudge, right? The initial, hey, I'm, we're working on a $20 billion tech deal. Um, how does that happen? Is it over, you know, I have, I think we all have a, a few different images of what M&A journalism is. There's the, the movie Wall Street, the blue horseshoe phone call that you get, or is it, you know, you're out having a, a drinks with a banker and he has one too many shots and he tells you something he shouldn't. What, what is it? How does that all get going? Every possible scenario you can think of, as long as it's in within the realm of ethic, you know, ethical practice for us, has transpired and transpires. Uh, uh, people boast, uh, people worry about what they're missing out and they have heard something and they want to check it out. People are ready to promote uh, something they have worked on. You know, there's strategy, there's lack of strategy, there's reason, there's not a reason. Uh, but I'll tell you one thing that, in my view, having been an M&A journalist, I don't think there is much merit from my point of view to speculate too much on people's incentives or try to position like reportings and getting things based on reading someone's like psychology or, you know, motives or incentives. I'm interested in what is true. I'm interested not to get spun. If we praise it, it has to be accurate. There. Well, when you say motives, right? It's like, I, I guess I have this perception that there's this yeah. tit for tat relationship that goes on between the journalists and the sources. You do this for me, I'll do this for you. Is and that then, not- and then, and then you try to extrapolate that, well, could then the journalists be spun and the story be not true because some sort of transactional relationship is being served and could that actually be spilling over into the accuracy of the story or the point of view of the story or the, does the story have an agenda? So for us at Reuters and in my, my team and at Reuters, um, it does not. So what we look at is whether what we're hearing is true can be verified. And sometimes that can be done with two people. Sometimes it needs 10 people. Uh, but it has to be certain as the sun rising from the east. Now, sometimes, you know, a deal may not be like for $35 per share, may end up being for $37 per share. Uh, or something else, particularly when you're looking to describe terms or everything involved may not be, you know, end up kind of like being like that, not for any other reasons, because things move, right? I mean, you, you, if you're looking to be the press release, you're like catching a snapshot and you're hoping that by the end of it, that's what it looks like and you get like vindicated. What, but what, the premise of the story, you know, is safe. What is it about uh, price terms that seems to be the one thing in all, across all media, Bloomberg, Reuters, Wall Street Journal, People will never really give that last detail of saying, you know, for the most part, Reuters does it more than the others, but they'll say it's $100 a share. Like, for example, even in this story you wrote on Zayo yesterday, yeah. you're like eight to nine billion. Yeah. Well, why not just say what the price is? Who's ever, who's ever telling you that nugget of information? Because I have to make sure that uh, when the deal prints, the dollar per share uh, number is what we wrote about. And of course, I have heard something more specific, but you got to be certain not to write something that doesn't end up happening. So if we are like, you know, given a range, then we'll kind of like, uh, you know, print the range. Another thing that happens a lot in a minute journalist with everyone is that, you know, there's a lot of haggling involved. So we're talking and I'm like, oh, you know, we'll, at, the, at some point we'll be talking about the price and what's the price? And I'm like, oh, I can't tell you. But you know, um, uh, Mike, you know, the stock is trading at 20 at the moment, so surely it has to be more than 30, right? Yeah, 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 it's probably more than 30. But you know, like they be, these guys wouldn't be like a crazy premium, so it, it can't be more than 40, right? Yeah, no, it's not more than 40. Okay, some of it's 30 or 40, but you know what? These guys don't seem kind of like very kind of like, you know, overzealous. So probably be like in the, in the low, like between 30 and 35, right? Yeah, between 30 and 35. And all of a sudden, you got like a range that you otherwise wouldn't have. And a lot of, 
price stuff you see uh, are the product of haggling and people trying to at least kind of like get a range. Okay, so, so it's almost like not worth being wrong on a slightly on price. You don't want to be wrong. You don't no, want to be wrong. That's the, that's the one thing you don't you don't want to gamble. Actually, something so there's like one particular. Uh, I think most of us, like responsible M and A journalists, we we don't gamble. So okay, going back to the idea of haggling, right? Because this isn't Twitter, right? The, the what Reuters news or what um, the Blue, Bloomberg puts out, you can't just go quickly back and forth and retract and do sort of things like that. So like in the story like Zayo that you wrote yesterday, very detailed, gets not refuted, but details of the story get refuted today by another news organization. Right. Why doesn't Reuters, why don't you come out and say, um, we stand by our story? Or you know what, we're, you're wrong. Or does the fact that you don't reprint say, hey, we stand by our story? Well, I think uh, in the case of Zaya Singh, if I remember correctly, today CTFN came out and said just like the one of, so we mentioned three private equity firms, that one private equity firm's kind of like- They said C Omer's has dropped. We never mentioned Omer's in our story. We mentioned Stonepeak, and I think like, so they said something like Stonepeak, which is not part of the- Correct, company. yes. That's not in line with our reporting yesterday when we kind of like reported it. But I don't think they disputed, um, the premise of the story that, you know, the private equity consortium led by AQT has exclusivity, you know, like, right. I think they put in a particular price, $35 per mm -hmm. share, which I have not verified. Um, but uh, sure, um, you know, there are, it doesn't happen often, um, like, this, like this you mentioned um, today, but it'll happen that people will get kind of like, you know, different reporting or we'll get kind of like different reporting from other people. Um, as I'm mature, I try basically to avoid kind of like Twitter fights. Right. And uh, there's, you know, I you have to come from the standpoint that everyone is searching for the truth. I stand by, you know, my reporting and my my track record. I mean, so I often get people saying, well, you know, you say that and the other outlet says the other, then I say in that situation, dude, just run by byline, right? The other dude's byline, look at all the stories, see what has come to pass. So, and that's the only thing you can do at the end of the day. Right. So in the, and feel free not to answer this if you don't want to. So, I mean, in the Zayo story, one of the things that you wrote that in the headline was that it was nearing a deal. Yeah. And in the CTFN, it basically implied that like, hey, they need another equity partner. And they're and they're shopping for one. So to me, that would imply that it's not close. Yeah, again, I, I don't know what to say because you have our reporting and we we run it very safely. Again, we we care about our stories aging well. Right. Right. So um, while we say and other people say in their story that you know um, there's always a possibility the deal doesn't happen. I remember there was. Um, a private equity, um, a leverage buyout in the industrial sector, in the tech private, uh, earlier this year, remember, that had kind of like an activist as well, that had yeah, Arconic? six, yeah, six, by my count, six nearing deal stories. Yes. And it didn't happen. Yes. And that was, that was I mean, I haven't seen this again, as long as- That I'm was a shit show. That was, that was, yeah, but you know, like, but you want your stories to age well. And sometimes to, to your best efforts, you know, it may not happen. Sometimes, you know, you, you need to be careful in your phrasing. So someone may, you know, can be in the lead, you know, but that doesn't mean they're nearing a deal. Someone can be in the lead having offered a higher price. So if there is a deal with them, that doesn't mean that they're close to a deal. Um, if, if a company has granted exclusivity and they're a publicly listed company, the chances of a deal are high because normally they don't do that unless the price is attractive and the execution risk is low. So that's... A concrete data point as to right. whether, you know, a company kind of like you know. I guess there, there's. It seems to me that the there's a sort of a few boilerplate words that are, are that are they? that are important are though. They? That are important. Meaning, if you said they're in talks with Colony, or if you said they're near a deal with Colony, or if you said they're in advanced deal talks with Colony, they all mean different things. Yes. And what I would tell you is that we are trying to be very careful with our wording, but I know from your perspective, you're trying to assign a, a numeric probability to a situation based on words used. And you don't have people on the other side, journalists, who share the same grid with you in terms of nearing being like 99%, closed being 90%, and advanced stocks being 70%. 
in talks being 50-50. Right. It doesn't work like that. But the most important thing from, from my perspective is, is a sense of timing. So to me, yes, I know that's that. crucial. So to me, if, for example, if you said advanced, I'm like, this could happen over the weekend. And that is the most difficult ask, I think investors have of M&A journalists. What are we to do if something shows up in due diligence in the last week of the negotiations? Or someone says, you know, like we just found kind of like, you know, a, a pension liability this much, or, you know, like there's like, I have never worked, I'm not a, um, a deal maker, an advisor, I've never worked inside a deal, but I hear there's so many things that can be lazy. Sometimes things are big and strategic and they, and they set a, a drop dead date for signing and they say like, we're working to, to announce then whatever happens, we gotta figure it out. But sometimes like things stretched out. Sometimes when things are auctions, just because they set a final bid date and you can read kind of like actually proxies are very instructive in that regard. You can see how things have, those things tend to play out. Company can ask for final bids and then have another round of bids and then- Well, look at what a, a, Athena Health was a perfect example of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was another shit show. I mean, yeah. what happened there? Do you remember? I remember. Uh, well, what happened is that it, it didn't happen to us, but I think you need to be careful of <laughs> any hedge fund in the stock with a private equity arm with kind of like a particular agenda. Although, you know, that, that hedge fund also comprises of very talented guys. Just because like I'm an M&A journalist and other people are M&A journalists, that doesn't mean they should be like objective journalists. And here what happens to often to M&A journalists if they break a story. They, their reporting becomes long the deal. They, they, they develop a pro-deal pro bias because inevitably they want to see this thing signed so they can say, I broke this thing that happened because as we discussed, people remember less things that they didn't break. So when things do emerge uh, as the kind of show you described, if this is covered in particular by people who broke it, sometimes this, you know, not always, like, it's like, you know, there can be like less scrutiny of what's going on and there's like twists and turns and it becomes messy. And that was, you know, one of those situations because again, it was like an LBO where I don't remember who broke Athena Health's water, what happened. It was David Faber originally broke it. He I had believe. a lot of reporting. I don't know if he broke it. I remember he had a lot of report, but I think that that didn't work out very well for David as well. Why basically I, I respect as one of the most authoritative and responsible, you know, I have to say, um, tremendous admiration. It happens. What I also tell people is that you guys know, like this, some um, of these public companies, take privates are already walking LBOs and then you've read about you know, execution risk and the chances of something like that doesn't happening. You know, like, you know, if, if people speculate on things like that, they need to be prepared for, you know, what happens. I wanted to talk a little bit about competition. You mentioned David Favor, competition between your colleagues, mm. right? Competition between CNBC, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg. Mm. Is that real? Fierce. Fierce. Absolutely. Yeah, and absolutely. It's very real and uh, fierce. Yeah. Uh, people take a lot of pride in um, breaking things first, for sure. And do you feel like, uh, well, I guess all those people are considered rivals. Do you have relationships with these people? Some of them, some of them are like more than, more than others. Yes. But they're all, you know, they're all good people. Sometimes it happens because of personal chemistry or the circumstances, or, you know, you had a brush with someone and you like them or you competed too much kind of like against, uh, someone. But, um, I know people, you know, and all the people at, uh, was general, uh, people like Bloomberg, CNBC, and I have, you know, although I have less, you know, I'm less close to some than others, I have tremendous respect for all of them. So one of the things I wanted to do was reach out to a few different journalists and ask them if I said, hey, I'm interviewing Greg this afternoon. Is there anything that you would want to know about Reuters and what happens there? So I did have a question come in. If it's okay, I'd like to read it. Sure. So this one was from Ed Hammond at Bloomberg. Okay. okay. So I said, uh, what would you want to know? And this is a quote. Yeah. He said, "Ask, please ask him why he's obnoxious to his competition. Dana, Dana Mariola, and I managed to be nice to each other. What would you say to that? Oh, dear. I think I would say, Ed, let's talk. I don't think, I don't know what would um, justify that. I think with Ed, we've competed a couple of times too hard, and that may have been a factor. But um, I... Definitely, you know, try to be respectful of um, all of my colleagues. And um, 
I try to, you know, because it's, it's, it's a tough business and, you know, you, you need, you know, a strong ego to carry you through. I try to be sympathetic. I, I would argue that, you know, maybe not as strongly, but, uh, you know, if you gave me a heads up on speaking to Ed, I would ask a question kind of like a similar, similar, along similar lines, but I'm like, I'm sympathetic to the fact that it's, you know, a competitive business. What's important is to, you know, to acknowledge each other's work if, you know, we do good reporting and I think, you know, generally that happens. Let me ask you this question, having no knowledge of it, but besides the, the, the glory, so to speak, of being first, yeah. is there a financial uh, benefit to being first? Does, do you get compensated by Reuters for, let's say, breaking a story first? No. Well, o- overall, of course, we uh, have appraisals at the end of the year and uh, we get rated and if we do better, our pay rise will be a little bit more. Right. But we don't get paid per scoop. Uh, we don't get paid for moving stocks, I think. Uh, and I know it's difficult in your business and in the business of investment advisors also working for fees to to basically come to grips with that. But um, M&A journalism is still journalism and of the pursuit of the truth still supply. The, the, the scoop is still truth. And I don't think you would want to distort that. I think I and people on my team are very motivated just because they are passionate about winning and they take satisfaction in what they do. Right. So I want to talk about the, the team a little bit. Yeah. Um, you have some really good reporters there. Liana Baker is really good. And uh, how do you manage them? So is it is it autonomous? Do they have free reign? They're sort of on their own. They do what they want or, or are they managed? They are managed. Some, you know, more seasoned like Liana, uh, very loosely. In fact, Liana is my deputy. And some, you know, a little bit more so. But generally, I, w- I would tell you that... Uh, I have built, you know, a pretty strong team where um, I can trust them to go out and source build and do reporting and come back and obviously run the sourcing by me before they do a story, uh, but, you know, uh, do good work and stay on top of their beats. You know, people want to speak to people who are in the know that, you know, they covered they beat swell. So as long as they do that well, I'm happy and we've been doing well. So I'm sure you saw Dana Mediola's leaving her post as, as M&A reporter at the Journal. So when that happens, do you and think... B- being succeeded by, um, I have to say, um, a, a very um, talented and impressive lady, Carol Lombardo. Yep. Uh, well, I guess... <laughs> we, we suddenly noticed, yeah. Do you think like does a light bulb go off in your head and you say okay like there are there sources up for grabs does it does it work like that or do you believe that those are Wall Street Journal loyal sources and they're going to speak to whoever the mouthpiece is? Well, that always happens. I mean, I I so I've never worked for the Journal, so I'm I'm sure there are some people who would work who would kind of like have a relation with loyal to the Journal just because it's the Wall Street Journal. But I think that's become kind of like. Um, that's becoming less and less, and I think that's you know um, uh, part of the satisfaction of my job. That increasingly this business, just because again the media are becoming kind of like so digital and appropriating, it's about you know the individual reporter and the authority and the respect they have, and as long as they have kind of like a mass distribution and the stories will reach them and the stories um, are accurate and they're also written well. We believe in strong writing as well. That works. The last thing I'll ask you about sourcing is, do you ever feel like you were taken advantage of? No, because I've never printed something I haven't verified. So I've certainly been told things many, many times I checked out that are not true, but um, that's part and parcel of reporting. Like, you know, people, you know, will leak and sometimes they have an agenda. So that's the value you add as a journalist, kind of like you filter that and you verify that. And um, it's always best not to try to kind of like to mislead someone, lie to someone. It it doesn't happen often because, you know, we have a regular contact with many of our sources. We see them again and again. And why would you lose capital kind of like with trusted relationships kind of like in, in, in our world, in the news media? 
if you come across them again and again, usually what you find if people can't help us with something, they just can't help them and we respect that and we move on and we may talk about something else later. But, you know, it, do, it doesn't happen that often anyway. Um, or it, it doesn't happen that much. It, do you have a speaking By of intention. A lot of, a lot of things don't check out, but I don't think a lot of people are out there, you know, to basically kind of mislead us all the time. But if they try to do that, we have a foolproof system for verifying things, so not to get spammed. Right. Right. Okay. So I end every interview with sort of five questions for the guest. All right. So the first question that I wanted to ask you is, in your, uh, and this goes back to sort of what we were talking about before, you've been at Reuters for 11 years now. And, 13. Uh, 13. Okay, so in those 13 years we talked about there were situations where you heard lots of rumblings but it wasn't enough to print. Yeah. So if you can talk about it, what was sort of the biggest rumble that you've heard over the last 13 years that just never amounted to a deal per se but was a large rumble? I've heard every crazy thing you can think of, like Exxon buying kind of like Chevron, I've heard like, you know, um, you know Amazon buying Apple, you, you name it. I've heard, I've heard it all and know those particular ones, but I've heard some crazy ones from pretty credible people. So, you know, and, and the reason it happened, I think, is that the paranoia of missing out is intense among the deal makers as well. So as crazy as something may sound, if it's big enough, you really got to make sure it's not happening from their perspective as well. So I, I would have to grade it and say, well, were the Ramblings particularly strong about a particular rumor, but I've heard all kind of things. Nothing like I, I've heard once someone say that Google was in talks to buy Twitter and just never got off the ground. Yeah, but probably. Wasn't that a Bloomberg story, I think? Maybe. Yeah. But there was never something that you just never printed that you can talk about that you were like, I, I, I heard something, you know, pretty substantial that things were happening. It could be, you know, eight years ago. Yeah, I, w I wouldn't, that I wouldn't want to go because like either, either it was true or... It wasn't true, and because I didn't, I never printed it. It wasn't true, so there's no point in me just repeating it now for the fun of it. You know what I mean? Okay. But like, uh, we hear a lot of crazy things all the time. Okay. Is there a particular industry? I know you can't say uh, what you what's on the tip line right now, but is there a particular industry that looks like it's m more uh, ripe for consolidation? That there's been activity uh, currently than well, others? You, you see. Um, uh, Everything, uh, not just kind of like technology, but tech-enabled at the moment, um, is going, you know, through... Tech-enabled. Tech-enabled is going through major change. I mean... Um, um, what would be an example of a company in that financial, space? Financial technology, you know, okay. for example. Or, you know, healthcare, you know, pockets of healthcare there. Uh, consumer, obviously, kind of like anything, kind of like internet retail. Um um, there was a senior Goldman banker at this um, corporate law conference that a lot of M&A people go to in Tulane, in New Orleans, you may have heard about, um, happens every March. And I think that was not this year, it just happened, but the year like before, where she was talking about, look, you know, if you really kind of like want to see structurally where the big deals will happen, look at, you know, the big structural changes in the industry based on artificial intelligence and big data and, you know, uh, m and it's, unfortunately, it's, 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 it's a pretty effective uh, efficiency-driven job-destroying tool as well. So look at where the potential is there and, you know, you'll see, you know, potential like in many, many industries driven by that. For example, at the moment in industrials, right? Not many things happen in mm -hmm. terms of corporate M&A because valuations are high. Right. But that doesn't mean that structurally the things are not there for eventually the floodgates to open and floodgates will open in industrial M&A at some points and it won't be for the most part just kind of like, you know, corporate carve-outs and companies. Right, right. Okay. Question two. I know you're not like a, a, the kind of journalist who conducts interviews per se, but I'm sure there must be someone in your head who you would view as a dream interview. And I wanted to know who that would be. Well, we actually do come across many colorful um, personalities, even, you know, uh, deal makers, um, investment bankers, uh, lawyers, but, you know, it probably have to be, um, you know, um, a CEO, um, 
And I mean this, in, it can be for work or just you personally. Yeah, like interesting personalities yeah, out there, yeah. generally. Oh, oh I, I mean, I, I'd love to interview Trump. You know? Okay. I'm, I'm absolutely, you know, I'm not kind of like politically a fan, but I'm absolutely fascinated. So, If you could only ask him one question, what do you think you would ask him? Um, what do you believe? What do you really believe in? Like, but I would really grill him on that. I would go beyond kind of like the America first stuff and just kind of like see if I can really get it to the point where it's kind of like personal gratification or like what's like, you know, the, the, the driver there. That would be a tough one. It would be a tough one, but usually it wouldn't be done by one question, but I'd love to have a, I'd love to have a crack at it. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, can you tell me, um, another, another more personal question, favorite, uh, book, movie and show, uh, of the last, let's say year or two. Um, favorite book actually if something that it's not my favorite favorite but I think something that you'd appreciate have you heard about the watchdog that didn't bark it's a book written by a guy called Dean Starkman who used to work for the Wall Street Journal he worked for the local press as well and it's a book about how financial journalism became a little bit CNBC ties uh, and I have great respect for CNBC but how it missed the financial crisis and why it missed the financial crisis and how what I do, M&A, scoops, what have you, became kind of like a bigger part of business journalism, but how many aspects of business journalism about how uh, what companies do and their business affects people was neglected a little bit or there wasn't kind of like in, enough depth. And although still great journalism is being done today by by Rogers and by others, I, I, you know, it, it's a great book. Mm. I, I recommend The Watchdog That Didn't Bark. Okay. Movie? Um, movie, oh dear. Movie, because I'm an Anthony Hopkins fan, there is um, uh, a movie called uh, Shadowlands about, um, you know, a British professor who fell in love with um, an American author. He was um, a professor, I think, um, in Oxford or Cambridge, I think Oxford. Um, and it's, it's a little bit of a dark movie. I'm not going to spoil it, but basically the lady falls sick, but like Anthony Hopkins, um, is, you know, one of my favorite actors. The movie, um, uh, looks at why bad things happened and how the guy started off as an atheist, but he ended up kind of like, you know, not being not a fanatic Christian, but just because, um, his partner was religious, kind of like it, it challenged that and. It's a, it's a great movie that looks at many of the fundamental things in life. So Shadowlands is probably mm -hmm. like a 25, 30 year old movie now. It's called Shadowlands? Shadowlands. Okay. Cool. Yeah, yeah. And uh, are you a TV guy? My TV guy? Uh, well, I like John Oliver a lot. You okay. Know, I, I, I used to live, you know, in Britain for um, close to 10 years. And, you know, he used to do a podcast like you do here, like... Uh, over there before he even started on The Daily Show. So uh, I'm a big uh, John Oliver fan. Okay, I am too. Um, okay, question four. What is the craziest or most unusual way you ever got a scoop? So without kind of like describing the public setting, you know that people say that you can forget kind of like a, a briefcase in the train or you just see something or, you know, you just kind of like walk down Park Avenue and like people talk all the time. Right. Inadvertently, inadvertently, I have kind of like come across something. And then I went to great page to make sure that when it was verified, you know, people knew, including the person who told me inadvertently and get kind of like their, or, or I heard of inadvertently and get their sign off. So I just had kind of like this crazy situation in a public setting where something kind of like, you know, transpired. And it ended up being true. It ended up being true. We did a story, you know. Can you say what the deal no, was? No, can't say. I can't, can't say because the person kind of like, you know, uh, would go crazy. Okay. But um, mostly, you know, stories come from people who know what they're doing, but on my part, deliberate, but right. uh, yeah. Okay. Um, and then the last question uh, is sort of a two-parter. What would you say are your passions and hobbies, you know, outside of work? And then if you could describe something uh, what's something that you are not good at or that you struggle with? 
So the latter, much more than kind of like, many more than like the former, kind of like the list is longer for the latter. But I play backgammon a lot because mm. I'm Greek. So I have a couple of friends who do, and I enjoy that. I, I used to be like much more athletic than I am now. So I'm not kind of like as good as anything that involves too much physical activity. I like uh, quiz shows quite a bit. Um, there was this... Um, You're talking to someone who's tried out for Jeopardy 11 times, so... You didn't make it? Never made You're it. You're such a clever guy. No the, way. What the online what? test is actually tonight, so maybe... What's going wrong? What's up with that? Is it like... It's just hard to get in. What if so many for? people take the test. So weird. You know, there was uh, like a British TV uh, quiz show that also came here called The Weakest Link. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Uh, that was hosted by kind of like a British journalist called Anne Robinson yeah. in, in the UK. And she also came here. I went on the Greek version of The Weakest Link. That was like probably, I don't know, 2003. Did you win? 2004. No, I was voted off unfairly like third from the end. I went quite a lot, but you know, like political voting uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah there's a YouTube video but I'm not going to say more because I think you need to know Greek to be able to type it but there's actually a relevant YouTube video yeah I love quiz shows also yeah and what about what's something that you struggled with or that you're just that you're not good at would you say well I'll tell you what I I came to New York I came kind of started being a business journalist and I'm not into sports okay and man particularly when kind of like a Super Bowl is around like Casual conversations can be very difficult <laughs> if, you're, if you're not into that. So that's something I kind of like, I had to overcome, you know, other activities you engage, kind of like if you're in business, like golfing, for example, I don't know how to golf, um, you know, things like that, where it becomes kind of like apparent that uh, I'm behind. Okay. Well, thanks again, man. I really appreciate you that coming was fun. today. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. My thanks again to Greg Vermiliotis of Reuters News. As a reminder, while this is a weekly podcast, I often tweet out thoughts in real time. The handle on that is at Accord to Sources. Again, that's A-C-C-O-R-D-T-O Sources on Twitter. And again, if there's a idea or a subject matter that you deem worth discussing, please email me. And the handle there is Michael at According to Sources Podcast.com. That concludes the podcast for the week of April 14th, and I will see you next week.